Okay, here we are. The 21st century. Y'all, I started this U.S. history season checks notes four years ago. We started, well, in the year 2019 and also in the year 1491, looking at all the myths about indigenous North America. We talked about the chaos of the colonies, the disparate goals of the revolution, the different developments of the various sections of the country. The Civil War solved some of those issues, kind of, for a bit. Actually, not really. As we grew into a fledgling empire and eventually a world superpower, the 20th century became dominated by global affairs and concerns over economic growth. By the 1990s, we were in a full-on identity crisis. Who are we if not the leader of the free world against the communist threat? What happens when our economy turns truly global and Americans increasingly become highly educated white-collar workers dealing in ideas and sales more than building and growing things? By the 2000 election, we're really treading water as far as our national identity goes. The politics of the last decade was more focused on the personality in the past of Bill Clinton than any overriding philosophical disagreement. And we don't have a common enemy to focus our attention outward. And I mean, the generations that experienced the civil rights movement first or second hand are now fully entrenched in powerful institutions. Our economy is booming, but our development as a country, identity-wise, is sort of stagnant. We could really use something to agree on and rally behind. I don't know, maybe it'll be the growing climate crisis or the implications of the ever-expanding internet or maybe a new century dedicated to truly establishing human rights for all, freed from 20th century arguments and able to connect people all around the world for the first time in human history. Or, I mean, we could just recycle the arguments of the 20th century, but add in a dash of social media to make things more interesting. Yeah, sure. Political partisanship and a global war on a noun it is, then. But before we get into the 21st century, let's address the elephant in the room. That joke will make sense in a second. I'm ending this U.S. history season with the Bush and then a little bit of the Obama presidencies, but obviously U.S. history isn't over. In fact, quite a lot has happened since 2016. I don't know if you've been paying attention. But in general, historians like to give events a decade to breathe, kind of like a nice bottle of wine, before diving into full-blown historical analysis. It's a highly academic approach that esteemed scholars like to call too soon. So if you're hoping to hear my historical narrative of the last 10 years, you'll have to wait a bit. After this season, I'm switching to a new format that's going to allow me to post way more regularly. And it's going to be a mix of current events analysis. That's all that stuff from the last 10 years. Also having really smart guests come on and teach me about things I don't know. And of course, a totally random historical tangent every once in a while, because like, that's my bread and butter. But before we get to season four, let's finally wrap up U.S. history with a look at George Bush, the other one, and a quick glimpse into the Obama years that we're just starting to figure out. Today's episode and the last episode of season three is all about the early 21st century, or apparently we can get fooled again. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glinkler. Settle in and let's go not too far back in time. Before we get into the episode, I just want to say a quick shout out and thank you to everyone who has been listening to this podcast since the beginning, or whether it's since the last episode, two days ago, whatever. And I want to give an extra special thank you to all of my Patreon subscribers. For those of you who don't know, the Patreon that grew over the last few years is really the main reason why I've been able to keep making this podcast, even in addition to teaching full time and working on other projects. So if you really like this podcast and want to continue to support it, the best and simplest way is to go to patreon.com slash antisocial studies and join. 
join. Your monthly membership is going to help me pay for like a real live human producer named Ryan. He's wonderful. Uh, you'll hear about him in really probably the beginning of season four and just really justifies me taking the time out of my evenings to make this podcast, continue reaching out to new guests and make more content. So if you can, please join. And if you can't, then please just share this podcast with a few people you think might love it. Thanks. Okay, let's get to the episode. Actually, before we get to act one, we got to do a prologue because I really have to drag this last episode out. Let's talk about the election of 2000. So the 2000 election is easily going to make it on my list of the most chaotic slash contentious elections in U.S. history. And if you're curious, the others in chronological order are 1824, 1860, 1876, 2016, and 2020. That's right. Three of the most chaotic elections, in my personal opinion, have happened in our lifetime. Your stress is justified. Okay, well, here's the textbook version of the 2000 election. Al Gore was trying to keep the Democrats in power as Bill Clinton left office. He was running with Joe Lieberman, by the way, who's the first Jewish person ever on a major party ticket. And his opponent was George W. Bush, son of the former president. And it was an incredibly close election and one in which the gap between conservatives and liberals began to widen in a trend that's going to end... I don't know, when's it going to end? I'm genuinely asking. Although Gore led and ultimately won the popular vote, neither candidate had won a majority of the votes in the Electoral College. And as it so often does, it came down to Florida and thousands of machines were unable to accurately read ballots. It was an issue that plagued generations of perfectly nice guys named Chad. The hanging chads, as they were called, from the readouts had to be deciphered individually. This led to hilarious photos of election officials with magnifying glasses trying to determine who each vote had been intended for. It was a mess. And side note, the catastrophe of like counting the ballots in Florida in 2000 has to be the origin story for so many graphic designers who realized that like the user experience of a simple ballot could literally change the course of history. As thousands of ballots were still being counted or recounted, Florida officials certified the results with Bush as the winner by just 537 votes across the state. Gore's team sued, saying that they should have a full recount because it was so close, and the decision went to the Supreme Court, who ruled in favor of Bush. So, despite receiving half a million fewer popular votes nationwide, Bush became the next president. Y'all, I want to note the fact that this was the first time since Benjamin Harrison's election in 1888 that the popular vote winner didn't become the president. Y'all, it's begun to happen so often in our lifetimes that we kind of assume the Electoral College going against the popular vote has just been like an annoying, semi-undemocratic constant in American politics. But nope, we had a solid century with the popular vote aligning with the ultimate outcome. And besides that, what else was controversial about 2000? Well, for one, the Republican candidate's younger brother, Jeb Bush, was the governor of Florida. And although he recused himself from the recount process, there were many around the country who felt like his administration would have a clear incentive to certify the results for his older brother. There was also just the confusion of the counting versus recounting versus overcounting versus undercounting. Basically, it was chaos across each county of Florida as the country watched on. We now know that if the full recount had occurred according to the requests of the Gore team, Bush still would have most likely won Florida. But it's important to note that Gore's team requested like the most moderate, the most conservative recount, I think in hopes that the courts would go along with it. 
So there are other scenarios where they could have asked maybe for a more thorough recount process that could have tipped in Gore's favor. So the general consensus by historians is that it's most likely that more Floridians voted or tried to vote for Gore, but through some problematic voter registration issues and genuine confusion with some of the ballots, there were more votes for Bush that were able to be reasonably counted. Do with that information what you will. So by the year 2000, our country was possibly more divided than it had been in generations. Our country had developed into a globalized, multicultural society with disagreements on both sides about what the future of our identity was as Americans. The 90s had devolved into culture wars about welfare queens, the war on crime, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and Monica Lewinsky somehow. And honestly, in hindsight, I really think that we could have seen the full breakdown of the two establishment parties during these early Bush years. Many Democrats were already pushing further left against the relative moderate conservatism of the Clinton years, while Bush would have led the establishment GOP further to the right, leaving the middle on both sides struggling to reach consensus. And of course, this is what's happening right now. What I'm saying is that I think it was probably supposed to happen after the 2000 election. Except something happened that made partisan divides and party infighting seem trivial, unpatriotic even. Act one, the war on terror. It feels weird to explain September 11th to you, but then again, there are full adults walking around almost old enough to rent cars who weren't alive in 2001. And even though so many of us experienced 9-11, watched it live on our middle school library's old box TV, for example, but maybe we've never gone back to learn about it as a historical event. So here are the basics. On the morning of September 11, 2001, four planes were hijacked by 19 terrorists in a coordinated attack organized by Al-Qaeda. The first two planes deliberately crashed into the north and south towers of the World Trade Center in New York. The second crash and the collapse of the towers were both caught on live TV as the world watched the news coverage. The third plane crashed into the Pentagon, while the fourth was crashed into a field by passengers who overtook the terrorists and sacrificed their own lives to prevent the plane from being used in a fourth attack heading for Washington, D.C. 2,977 people were killed from 93 different nations. The vast majority of those... 2,753 people were killed in the World Trade Center attacks in New York. 184 people died at the Pentagon, and all 40 passengers were killed on Flight 93. It's really hard to summarize the historical impact of this day. Like, it's no exaggeration to say that we entered a new era of humanity. Literally. World historians have typically divided human history into six major eras, but we're starting to discuss maybe a seventh era that probably began in 2001. If I can be cynical for a second, which I really don't like to be about 9-11, we could wonder why this event was such a big deal, considering wars and terrorist attacks had been occurring around the world well, forever, but definitely still during the relatively peaceful post-Cold War era of the 90s, right? I mean, 800,000 Rwandans had been slaughtered in just two months in 1994. The Yugoslav Wars spanned the decade and caused over 4 million deaths. But this was different somehow. The U.S. was at peace, as much as we could be, as our military still spanned the globe. And there had been terrorist attacks before, the Oklahoma City bombing for one, but even Al-Qaeda had already carried out attacks on the U.S. in U.S. embassies in Africa and on a U.S. warship docked in Yemen. In terms of pure numbers, though, all of those terrorist attacks pale in comparison to September 11th. For some more context, more people died on September 11th than at the Pearl Harbor attacks that launched us into World War II. 
Now, the bloodiest day, quote-unquote, in American history still remains September 17, 1862, as almost 4,000 U.S. soldiers died in a single day at the Battle of Antietam. But again, those were during wartime, and most of the deaths were soldiers. That doesn't make it any less tragic, but it does make it slightly less surprising. Side note, the deadliest day in American history is now just a collection of random days in February, March 2021, as thousands of Americans died each day of COVID, but I digress. So where did Al-Qaeda come from? Why attack the United States? Well, the short version is that Al-Qaeda, which is Arabic for the base, was formed in the 1980s in Afghanistan as Mujahideen fighters were resisting the Soviets. Remember those enemies of our enemies that we helped during the Cold War? Yeah, we sent weapons to Osama bin Laden because he was fighting against the Russians. And it's important to note that Al-Qaeda has always seen itself as freedom fighters, fighting against some new form of Western imperialism as the Cold War raged over control of the Middle East. Osama bin Laden was able to spark a militant interpretation of Islam that saw jihad as their duty to defend their lands from non-believers, especially Westerners who had colonized and influenced the region for the past century since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. I want to make two things really clear. Groups like Al-Qaeda are as Muslim as groups like the KKK are Christian. And number two, by far the people most attacked and harmed by militant Islamic terrorism are other Muslims, like the millions of Muslims who practice their religion of peace and are being held hostage, sometimes literally, but more often figuratively, by extremists who are using a perversion of their faith as a way to motivate mostly young men to fight and die for control of land and resources. Whew, sorry, that was like full-on rant. From Osama bin Laden's perspective, the U.S. was the center of the West that had attacked, influenced, undermined, and stolen resources from the Islamic world. So he devised an attack on the U.S. military, the Pentagon, the U.S. political system, Washington, D.C., and the U.S. financial center, New York City. So just months into his presidency, Bush was faced with the worst attack in American history and one of the worst attacks during peacetime in all of world history. What now? Okay, well, from the Bush administration's perspective, first, we need to figure out who did this. And that part was easy, considering Al-Qaeda proudly claimed the attacks. But Al-Qaeda isn't a country. How do we deal with a group that has no borders or official government? Where do we direct our response? Well, actually, that part was pretty simple, too. It became clear very quickly after the attacks that Al-Qaeda had been harbored and supported by the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. To clarify, the Taliban was and I guess is again, the radical Islamic government that controlled Afghanistan. So we directed our response to them, basically hand over bin Laden and help us root out the Al-Qaeda camps in your country or prepare for war. And this ultimatum was delivered on September 20th during the most important speech of George W. Bush's presidency. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Americans have known wars, but for the past 136 years, they have been wars on foreign soil, except for one Sunday in 1941. Americans have known the casualties of war, but not at the center of a great city on a peaceful morning. Americans have known surprise attacks, but never before on thousands of civilians. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. The Taliban must act and act immediately. 
they will hand over the terrorists or they will share in their fate. I also want to speak tonight directly to Muslims throughout the world. We respect your faith. It's practiced freely by many millions of Americans and by millions more in countries that America counts as friends. Its teachings are good and peaceful. And those who commit evil in the name of Allah blaspheme the name of Allah. Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. It was during this speech to Congress that Bush announced the war on terror, saying it, quote, begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. And this is part of what's now known as the Bush Doctrine. Basically, the U.S. will secure itself against any country that promotes or harbors terrorist groups. And, really importantly, we won't necessarily wait until we're attacked before we take action. Modern methods and military technology just make this too risky. Like, now that a few terrorists in eastern Afghanistan can kill 3,000 Americans in an instant, maybe we can't afford to wait. So how are we going to fight a war on terror? Just like the Cold War against communism, like, how do you defeat a noun? Well, I mean, we have some tricks up our sleeve, right? Our financial institutions can freeze the assets of suspected terrorists or their financers. We can use the CIA abroad to track down terrorist networks and hopefully prevent future attacks. And we can more effectively monitor people in the United States to coordinate efforts to find and eliminate threats to the country. And all of those domestic organizations will be combined into a new Department of Homeland Security. Wait, hold on, go back. How are we monitoring U.S. citizens? Wait, like, don't we have a Fourth Amendment somewhere that protects us against unreasonable search and seizure by the federal government? Shut up, you nerd. Let me introduce you to our new law that has the most amazing acronym of all time. The USA Patriot Act. Insert eagle sounds here. The USA Patriot Act stands for the Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism. It's an acronym. I'm sorry, but like... Just consider that in the weeks after September 11th, some group of fairly important people sat around with a thesaurus to make this acronym work. Like, I admire the dedication and commitment to the bit. The Patriot Act, passed in 2001, made it easier for the government to monitor suspected terrorists by tracking online communications and seizing voicemails. Side note, after we took the APUS history exam, our class, like my junior year, did a research project where we could each pick anything from history or recent events to research and report on. So using our fancy computer lab and the EBSCO research database, that's a throwback, I chose to research the USA Patriot Act that had been passed just four years earlier, because of course I did. And also shout out to Kathy Cluck, my APUSH teacher and current collaborator who made me want to be a teacher. She's still in the classroom. She's awesome. Anyway, back to 2001. So the Taliban didn't cooperate typical. And on October 7th, just three weeks after the attacks, the U.S. began Operation Enduring Freedom, an inspiringly named bombing campaign against Taliban forces in Afghanistan. Within just weeks, the Taliban was in collapse. By November 14th, the U.N. was already passing resolutions for the orderly transition of power and peacekeeping in the aftermath of the war. 
Escaping on horseback just one day before Afghan forces captured his men, Osama bin Laden fled. But by December 5th, there was a new provisional government in charge of Afghanistan, backed by the UN Security Council. So that's it, right? Like, did we just defeat terror in a few months? Well, if you remember from my world history season one, toppling regimes is actually fairly easy. Controlling, pacifying, and rebuilding foreign lands is a lot harder. Especially in Afghanistan, which has been known for centuries as the graveyard of empires. Ongoing violence and instability meant that the U.S. military would stay in the country, not fully trusting the new Afghan government and forces to be stable or strong enough to prevent a retakeover by the Taliban, which, let's be honest, is exactly what would have happened if we'd left, and we know that because it's exactly what did happen when we left 20 years later. Now, at this point, you might be starting to wonder, like, what the heck does Iraq have to do with any of this? What a fantastic question. One that many Americans started to ask themselves over the next year. Because you see, after the fairly successful and widely supported actions in Afghanistan, the Bush administration began expanding its list of enemies and potential harborers of terrorists. At the 2002 State of the Union address, Bush warned of a, quote, axis of evil made up of Iran. Okay, sure, they've been calling us the devil since 1979. North Korea, totally fair and Iraq. Huh? Where is Iraq again? Is that different from Iran? Asked many Americans at the same time. I mean, some Americans knew about Iraq, especially those who were around for the first Iraq war, aka Desert Storm, aka George H.W. Bush's war against Saddam Hussein's military attempt to take over oil-rich Kuwait. But all of a sudden, the Bush administration was warning about potential weapons of mass destruction, WMDs, and calling out the brutal dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. And so a lot of Americans, myself included as a young high schooler, right, just kind of started to assume that there was some direct connection between the Iraqi government and the September 11th attacks. Like, maybe we found out that Saddam Hussein had also backed al-Qaeda? No, they didn't have any operations in Iraq at the time. I don't know, maybe we had firm evidence that they were still developing WMDs like they had used against the Kurds in the 90s? And then promised us they would destroy after Clinton bombed their nuclear facilities for good measure. Well, no, UN inspectors hadn't found any evidence of WMDs on their many recent searches. Hmm. Well, anyway, yada, yada, yada. In 2002, Bush began making demands to Saddam Hussein's government via the UN. Iraq allowed UN inspectors to comb the country for evidence that they were still making WMDs, nuclear or non-nuclear. But by 2003, they'd still found nothing. So then the U.S. said, well, they're probably hidden, and Saddam Hussein is a brutal dictator oppressing people, so we should just invade anyway. To which the rest of the world said, I mean, there are lots of brutal dictators around the world right now. Are you going to invade all of them? Why Iraq? To which the Bush administration replied, because I said so. I'm joking and not joking at the same time. Like, the more distance that historians get from the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the more clear it becomes that the reasons the U.S. government gave to justify that invasion were flimsy at best. There was no evidence of WMDs, no connection to al-Qaeda and or the 9-11 attacks at all. And sure, Hussein was a dictator, but he'd been in charge since 1979. So why now? I'm honestly not going to answer that question. <laughs> That's a question that might get me into trouble with at least half of my listeners. I will just say it's a highly politicized question of to what extent did the Bush administration get involved in Iraq for other reasons, whether that was access to oil or to kind of redeem his father's perceived failure in not getting rid of Saddam Hussein in the first Iraq war. 
Of course, there's also the argument that we liberated Iraq from a brutal dictator and that this was a place that would have harbored terrorists had we allowed them to continue. And that according to the Bush doctrine, we had to like get them out, get these bad guys out before they could get us. I don't know. I'm going to leave it up to you. But as the U.S. prepared to invade, global opinion fractured and our allies were stuck between Iraq and a hard place. Or should I say stuck between Iraq and a hard place? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay. To be clear, the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan was widely supported by our allies. But many of the countries who had joined that coalition, like France, Germany and Canada, for example, straight up refused to support our actions in Iraq. U.S. allies in the region, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, refused to let us use their territories as bases to attack Iraq. In the end, 150,000 U.S. troops, 45,000 British troops, and like a few hundred special forces from Australia and Poland, probably just so that we wouldn't be mad at them, formed the small coalition that invaded Iraq on March 20th, 2003. Similar to Afghanistan, the Iraqi forces crumbled quickly. Like, by May 1st, just two months later, Bush declared that major combat was over, standing in front of a hauntingly prophetic, mission-accomplished banner. By the end of 2003, Saddam Hussein was captured, found guilty by an Iraqi court of ordering mass executions back in 1982, and a few years later, he was hanged. Okay, so two invasions. One more easily explained than the other, but both successfully eliminating a brutal authoritarian regime within two months of fighting. Great, right? Let's bring out that mission accomplished banner. Except, of course, <laughs> that we had destabilized two countries in an already unstable region within two years of each other and pissed off a lot of our allies in the process. Oh yeah, and the invasion of Iraq seemingly proved Osama bin Laden's point about the U.S. running rampant as an imperialist power in the oil-rich Islamic world. Like, young men especially began joining organizations like Al-Qaeda in droves to defend their land from the invading Americans. And I'm not saying that they were right. I'm also not saying they were entirely wrong. I mean, it's not a coincidence that Al-Qaeda had no presence in Iraq until after the U.S. invasion, and ISIS was founded in 2003 for similar purposes. I think you know the rest. Over the next decade plus, U.S. forces remained in both Afghanistan and Iraq, attempting to strengthen local forces and ensure the existence of new, semi-growing democratic institutions. As U.S. soldiers continued to be deployed and killed, especially in Iraq, public support for the war waned. While many wanted the U.S. to withdraw its forces entirely, Bush opted instead for a surge of 20,000 more troops in 2006 to restore order in a show of force. Led by General Petraeus, crime and terrorist cells were cleared out of Baghdad while the U.S. coordinated with Sunni groups that had been opposed to the U.S. invasion, but were now willing to work with us to fight the growing influence of the newly arrived al-Qaeda in their country. By 2008, violence in Iraq was on the decline, provinces were being turned over to the Iraqi government, and in 2010 under Obama, Operation Iraqi Freedom officially ended, with just 50,000 troops left in the country, mostly to train Iraqi forces. So were the wars successful? I mean, it's clear that the U.S. had to respond in some way to the September 11th attacks. It would have been unacceptable, and it would have made the U.S. a more appealing future target if we had responded to the mass killing of 3,000 civilians with just sanctions and diplomatic actions. We got the Taliban mostly out of Afghanistan for 20 years, allowing an entire generation of Afghan people, especially women, to grow up with more access to education, rights, and democracy than they had ever before. And that has to have a lasting legacy. But ultimately, it's kind of clear that we were just holding back the Taliban over the past two decades. As soon as we withdrew our forces in 2021, the regime retook power with astonishing speed. In Iraq, it's even murkier. 
While we did eliminate a dictator, we seem to have spawned a whole new generation of enemies. I actually personally know Iraqi people who are in no way supportive of terrorism, but whose view of the United States has been permanently marred by their memories of U.S. tanks pointing through their window when they were kids. Again, if you were on the ground in Iraq in 2003, 2004, 2005, it was sometimes hard to tell who the enemy was to you, right? If you weren't really paying much attention, there could be U.S. tanks outside your door. Are they the invaders or are they the liberators? And Al-Qaeda comes calling and says, see, these Western imperialists think they can just do whatever they want. It's pretty convincing to a lot of especially young people to say, yeah, maybe I should join them to defend my land. Again, the vast majority of the Iraqi people did not support terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. But we can see how the chaos that ensued from this political vacuum gave them just more power and more influence in the region. Act two, domestic questions. The Bush presidency was dominated by the war on terror, both abroad and at home. Renewed debates emerged that harken all the way back to the Constitutional Convention, like civil liberties, a tyrannical federal government, etc., etc., etc. For example, do captured suspected terrorists have the same rights as other prisoners? The U.S. got around that question to an extent by holding captured members of Al-Qaeda at Guantanamo Bay, the Cuban base that we somehow still control, even though we also have had an embargo on Cuba for 60 years. Like, I know a lot about Cuba, and I still don't quite get that. The trick was figuring out if a captured member of Al-Qaeda was a criminal suspect with a right to a lawyer, formal charges, and a proper trial, or were these prisoners of war? Were these enemy combatants in a war zone that now spanned the entire globe? If that were the case, well, surely the Geneva Convention and its rules of war would still protect them from outright abuses, but they weren't part of any signatory nation's armed forces. Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations were something new. They weren't civilians, but they weren't official military. They had no home, no borders, no clear legal status, which allowed them to fall through the cracks of due process and sometimes languish at Guantanamo for years without even any formal charges. But it also was these organizations' greatest strength. It has made it almost impossible to fully defeat a militant non-military that could be anywhere and anyone. Now, many Americans were relatively unconcerned with mostly foreign accused terrorists stuck far away in an island prison like Azkaban, but there were more difficult questions concerning the treatment and privacy of American citizens that sparked a lot more interest at home. The National Security Agency began monitoring newer forms of communication like phone calls and eventually the internet to track suspected terrorists. But there are still questions. Do they have to get a warrant? Isn't that the digital equivalent of unreasonable search and seizure? Also, who gets to decide how wide to cast the net for potential terrorists? Are we monitoring anyone who attends a mosque? Because it's important to note that waves of Islamophobia hit the nation in the years after September 11th. And despite Bush's pleas to the nation to understand that Islam was not the enemy, for many Americans, the word terrorist was no longer associated with white Christian Timothy McVeigh, but instead with a darker-skinned bearded man kneeling on a prayer rug. Side note, the NSA wiretapping program was suspended by the Bush administration in 2007. Or so we thought. This was the controversy that brought Edward Snowden to the forefront and eventually in hiding. In 2013, he revealed that the NSA was still allowed to collect data from telecommunications and internet companies and still spy on non-US citizens. And even more startling, he revealed that they could also collect data on US citizens without them knowing. 
Secret Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Courts, or FISA courts, were set up so that the federal government could secretly present their evidence and secretly be granted a warrant to secretly spy on U.S. citizens with essentially zero oversight or knowledge from the general public. And like the anti-federalists are just rolling in their graves. Of course, the eight years of George W. Bush were about more than the war on terror. Politically, the Supreme Court grew more conservative with the new Chief Justice John Roberts and the addition of Samuel Alito. Even though Bush's approval rating was fairly low, he won re-election against John Kerry in 2004. But just one year later, on August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast from Florida to Louisiana. Over 1,200 people died in the natural disaster, and it was made even worse by crumbling infrastructure, especially in New Orleans, that caused dangerous flooding, especially in the poorer and blacker parts of the city. I remember watching the news, seeing victims sitting on their roof, sometimes for days, waiting for help, food, clean water, information, anything. My high school gym housed Katrina evacuees for weeks, and many New Orleans residents just never returned home. The devastation was so bad. And some people blamed the New Orleans mayor for not issuing a mandatory evacuation soon enough, but generally Bush's federal government, especially FEMA, took the brunt of the criticism. Their response was incredibly slow and confusing, and considering that's like their main job, it was pretty bad. Also, total side note, but this was the first time I ever heard of a new rapper named Kanye West, because during a live fundraising telethon for the city of New Orleans, he famously went off script and said that, quote, George Bush hates black people. Oh, if we'd only known at the time what we were getting ourselves into. Correction, he actually said, George Bush doesn't care about black people. So sorry, Kanye. Katrina, plus the ongoing war slash not war slash troop presence in Iraq and Afghanistan led to a huge Democratic victory in the 2006 midterms. Democrats won control of both the House and the Senate for the first time since 1992, Clinton's election. And we also ended up with the first female Speaker of the House ever. If you're younger than me, it might be easy to not really know much about Nancy Pelosi or to just see her as that old politician lady who tore up Trump's speech at the State of the Union. But Nancy Pelosi was the highest ranking woman elected to the U.S. government ever, only surpassed very recently by Vice President Kamala Harris. <sighs> and now is the moment in our podcast when I attempt to explain the 2008 housing crisis to you. Listen, I really don't want to. Like, I wrote extra about the war on terror and Hurricane Katrina to put off trying to explain this particular topic. And yes, I've seen the big short multiple times. If Margot Robbie in a bathtub isn't enough to get me to understand it, that I'm just not sure that I ever will. But I'm going to give it my best try. First, let me give you my personal understanding of the housing crisis. And by that, I mean what I thought was happening as I emerged in December 2008, a magna cum laude college graduate with a shiny degree from UNC, ready for the world to offer me dream jobs and adulthood, only to end up working as a temporary receptionist at a software company. I mean, let me tell you, though, I was the best damn receptionist they'd ever seen. Like, move over, Pam Beasley. So my understanding of the housing crisis is this. Most people buy homes through mortgages. Like, most people aren't buying houses outright with cash. And for the longest time, mortgages were just these boring loans that people didn't pay much attention to because there were fancier, flashier ways to make money, I think. But at some point, banks and investors began to realize that they could buy people's mortgages as a really safe investment because most people paid off their mortgage. They wouldn't make a ton of money off of just one family's income, but if they bundled hundreds or thousands together, all of a sudden, that added up to a lot of money and a lot of interest payments that they could earn. 
Well, because banks and investors started to be interested in these mortgages as investment opportunities, lending companies were also incentivized to create more mortgages, meaning they were incentivized to give out more loans to people to buy houses. They started giving out loans to people that really shouldn't have qualified, like they didn't make enough money to pay it back. And in some cases, companies were straight up predatory, giving out really shifty loans with high interest rates to people with low incomes or bad credit. And to hide these ever-increasing flimsy mortgages, they bundled them with strong, solid loans so that investors wouldn't really notice. So if I owned my home with a mortgage that was within my income level and I was steadily paying it back, they would use mortgages like mine to cover up the loans they were handing out like candy, preying on poor people who wanted the American dream. At some point, and this is where I get pretty hazy, it all came crashing down. Because of course it did. People began defaulting on the bad loans because of course they did. But that freaked out investors who were now trying to get rid of their investments, which often included pretty decent mortgages that had been tied to the sinking ship. The way I explain it to students is it was basically like the 1929 stock market crash, but instead of buying stocks, it was banks bundling and moving around home loans. <sighs> Update. I just had my husband read over that section and he approved. And he has an MBA, so we're going to move on and call that a win. So since so many Americans were impacted, because most Americans, you know, live in a home, other parts of the economy started crumbling as well. By January 2009, unemployment was at 7.2%, and we were in the worst recession since the Great Depression. What a time for me to enter the workforce. It's important to note, and we seem to forget, that the housing market collapse occurred under the Bush administration. Was it his fault? I don't know. It didn't help that Republicans had spent the last two decades undoing financial regulations and oversight in an effort to compete with the global markets. In some cases, they were undoing literal New Deal legislation that was put in place for the purpose of avoiding a future economic crash. But the housing market and the newly globalized economy are both way too complicated to give any one person the blame or the credit. Although, of course, that's exactly what many Americans are going to try to do. If 2008 was similar to 1929, then that makes George W. Bush our Herbert Hoover, which feels right. And that means that his successor is going to enter the presidency in the most difficult economic situation since the father of the modern Democratic Party, FDR. No pressure. Obama. Okay, this feels really weird. But also, like, I'm reminded that a lot of my more recent students knew nothing about Obama except that he was the president. Like, born in Hawaii, Chicago organizer, Illinois senator. Nope, he was just the cool president with the badass wife. I guess fair enough, I guess. So during the 2008 election, the most important issue was the economy, finally overtaking the discussion of the continuing Iraq war that had dominated national politics for years. And with no incumbent running, this was an important opportunity to set the tone for the future of both parties. Republicans went firmly with an establishment candidate who was respected on both sides, Vietnam War hero and longtime Arizona Senator John McCain. But this was also the early years of the growing far-right movement, known at the time to some as the Tea Party. And in a concession to the more extreme side of their party, McCain selected Alaska Governor Sarah Palin as his running mate. In hindsight, Palin is really just like a rough draft of the Trump Marjorie Taylor Greene brand of Republicans we know today. But at the time, the tough-talking hockey mom who enjoyed hunting wolves from an airplane seemed like a very loud outlier in national politics. And that's really cute that we thought that. 
There are a lot of people who believe that Sarah Palin might have cost McCain the election, but that's not really supported by the data. Studies have shown that she might have cost her ticket as much as 2 million votes, but Obama won in 2008 by 10 million votes. I mean, who knows how that could have shaken out in the Electoral College, but still, it seemed the majority of the country was looking for an alternative to the Bush presidency, whose credibility had waned with the confusing war in Iraq dragging on and a burgeoning economic crisis in his wake. But still, many people paying attention to national politics believed that the 2008 Democratic candidate would be former First Lady-turned-Senator Hillary Clinton. I remember people talking as if it was a foregone conclusion. But then, there were rumblings about this young, charming upstart from Chicago. He had a weird name. Are we really going to elect a guy named Barack Hussein Obama during the War on Terror? But I remember everyone saying that we should pay attention to him, especially after a particularly inspiring speech in the 2004 DNC convention that took the spotlight almost entirely away from John Kerry, you know, the actual presidential candidate at the time. Obama's grassroots campaigning and inspiring but admittedly vague message of hope and change won over a lot of millennials who were often voting in one of their first presidential elections. In past elections, young voters were seen by most as a waste of time. Like, they don't vote like old people do, so why bother? But Obama focused on young people and it worked. And I know that because I was one of the young people he focused on and it worked. Obama visited my college, UNC Chapel Hill, during the campaign, speaking to a packed Dean Dome, the massive basketball stadium that carried the legacy of Michael Jordan. Obama got us excited. Like, I know it might be surprising now, but I was not very interested in politics at the time. I studied it, I learned about its history, but I was not a news junkie. Obama was genuinely the first politician who I felt like was actually talking to me. And so, much to my dad's chagrin, I registered as a voter in North Carolina, hoping I could make more of an impact there than in the Republican stronghold of Texas. And I did. North Carolina turned blue for the first and only time since 1976. For many, the election of Obama, first over a more well-known fixture like Hillary Clinton as the Democratic candidate, and then against long-serving establishment candidates like John McCain, it was the sign of a new era. Winning with 68% of the electoral votes, the biggest victory for a Democrat since LBJ in 1964, Obama was the first president to embrace social media. He had a beautiful family that drew comparisons to Kennedy's Camelot. He was one of our youngest presidents ever elected. Oh yeah, and he was black. It's kind of amazing how that fact seems like an afterthought, especially to a lot of my students now when we talk about Obama. They're like, well, yeah, the first president that I was aware of in my life was black. What's the big deal? And Gen Z has seen and prompted so much societal change in their young lives that they're often shocked when they learn how recently the world was a very different place. At UNC, living in my mostly black on-campus housing, I remember conversations that opened my eyes. Black classmates and hallmates debated whether white voters were ready to vote for a black man. As I watched the results pour in on election night, one black sweetmate predicted that, quote, he would be assassinated before he could take office. As a white girl from an overwhelmingly white suburb, this was all shocking to me. I was so naive. Like civil rights and Dr. King and political assassinations, those were a thing from history. But then I saw the hate that Obama and his wife received. Mock lynchings with the president's likeness hanged in effigy. Michelle referred to as an ape in heels and depicted as an aggressive black woman domineering her weak husband. On a purely personal note, the 2008 election opened my eyes in almost every way. 
to the hope and possibility that comes from being politically aware and involved with your community, but also how far we still have to go as a country to realize the dream of a place where all people are created equal. All right, from here on out, I'm just going to give an overview of the Obama years by the book, literally. Like, I think it's fascinating to read a textbook version of events that we've all lived through. And also, I don't have the energy to navigate the minefield of attempting to analyze his policies that we're still living with and debating. So you can decide if you think the textbook summary is sufficient or woefully lacking, really either in praise or complaints, depending on your political views. So Obama essentially had three areas of focus, the war on terror and the recession. He inherited both of those. And then his own agenda of domestic reforms. If you're curious, the first topic is titled A Troubled World in my classroom textbook. Obama took a more internationalist approach to fighting the war on terror. He relied on the UN and building consensus with our allies. But that doesn't mean that he didn't still dedicate a ton of time and resources toward the global war. Obama actually expanded the U.S. combat role in Afghanistan during the early years of his presidency. And he increased the growing pilotless drone program to track and eliminate al-Qaeda members. Although this wasn't an effort to reduce the number of troops on the ground, especially in Iraq. Obama's biggest foreign policy victory was the raid on a compound in Pakistan that killed Osama bin Laden. And I'm no war hawk, but I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I celebrated when I heard the news that the architect of September 11th had been killed. There was at least some sense of justice and closure, even if the war on terror was far from over. In fact, in the years since 2001, the number of terrorist organizations based in the Middle East had grown exponentially. What's the analogy? It's like you cut off a snake's head, but then five grow back. Is that a thing? I don't, no, I don't think that's a thing, but you get the point. As the Arab Spring spread popular unrest across the region and ended long-standing dictatorships in Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt, the chaos often opened up political vacuums for extremist organizations to step into. The best example of this was in Syria, when a civil war between the dictator Bashar al-Assad and resistance groups allowed the rise of ISIS, a terrorist organization committed to reclaiming the land of Iraq and Syria to create a Sunni caliphate. Through all of this, Obama struggled between his desire to decrease the U.S. presence in the region without allowing governments and oil supplies to fall to enemies of the United States. By the end of his presidency, the combat mission in Iraq had ended, despite requiring a resurgence to fight the rise of ISIS, and Obama had begun reducing U.S. troops in Afghanistan. By 2016, only 9,000 troops were left in Afghanistan, mostly just to prevent a resurgence of the Taliban in the east. But things weren't less complicated at home. Quickly into his first year as president, the economy was in a full-blown financial meltdown. That's what the textbook titled this section, Financial Meltdown. In a lot of ways, he was in a position really similar to FDR during the Great Depression. When he took action, conservatives claimed he was a socialist and his federal government was overreaching. This led to the rise of a new generation of Republican stars like Ted Cruz, who famously read Dr. Seuss in his attempt to filibuster Obama's Affordable Care Act. But of course, there were critics on the left who argued that Obama hadn't done enough. Senators like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders criticized the government for not doing more to punish the banks who had created the crisis in the first place. In fact, before he was even in office, Obama had signed on to Bush's drastic and unpopular plan to bail out the banking industry with an infusion of $700 billion in taxpayer-funded loans. To be fair, the Bush-Obama economic advisors had clearly learned their history. Like, they must have been listening to my episode about the Great Depression and how the federal government could have done more to step in and prevent the banking collapse that brought the rest of the economy down with it. But, And even though it seems increasingly clear that the bank bailout did work, at least it saved the banks from collapse that would have led to a domino effect across our economy, it's pretty fair to understand why it was really unpopular. 
the institutions that had created the issue with their risky loans and trading people's home mortgages in an attempt to make more money for themselves were now getting cash from the government while many Americans lost their homes. Not great. Now, to be fair, one of the first laws passed by Obama and his Congress was the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act that also provided tax cuts to working families and small businesses, consumer protections, federal funds for social programs, and more government oversight of financial institutions and large companies. This is a direct quote from the textbook, assessing the relative success of these early programs. Quote, by the end of 2009, GDP was up, large businesses were reporting gains, but the unemployment rate and federal deficit continued to rise. Do with that what you will. Especially now in 2023, one of the most important developments during the Obama years was the dramatically increasing divide between conservatives and liberals, really in all levels of politics. A cohort of Republican strategists and lawmakers spent Obama's inauguration night literally holed up in a bar, coming up with their party's strategy for the next four years. And it was simple. They wanted to make Obama a one-term president. And I want us to consider this change. Sure, Republicans hated Clinton and didn't want him to be reelected, but even then, during the 1994 midterms, they had proposed a contract with America, an expansive conservative platform that explained what their party was for. But now, just 14 years later, the party's main objective became about what they were against. Basically, whatever Obama and the Democrats wanted. Of course, Obama wasn't a one-term president, but his eight years in office saw partisanship and obstruction on a level that we'd really never seen before, at least in the last century. Again, it seems almost quaint now to remember Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham to prevent the passage of Obamacare, but this was wild at the time. The 2010 midterms saw the biggest power shift in 60 years. Republicans, led by a wave of grassroots conservative opposition known as the Tea Party, took over the House on a platform just generally opposed to big government. This included Bush-era programs as well, by the way. Now, with the income gap growing and political debates raging, liberals also, especially on the edges of the political spectrum, took up their own causes. Occupy Wall Street was a young grassroots movement centered in New York City's financial district. They claimed to represent the 99% against the wealthiest 1%. And some helpful historical context is that a major reason why income inequality grew so rapidly during these years was because of the housing crisis. Like, for the middle class, their biggest investment was by far their home. So when the market collapsed, plus rapidly rising healthcare and college tuition costs, their share of wealth dropped, often going toward the wealthiest groups who had been able to weather the financial crisis. Of course, Obama's landmark legislation was the Affordable Care Act, both lovingly and cynically nicknamed Obamacare. In one of the largest social overhauls in U.S. history, the law extended healthcare coverage to 32 million Americans who had previously not been able to afford it. Now, this came with a controversial requirement that Americans have health care, which to conservatives and libertarians was seen as a tyrannical mandate by a too large federal government. And the rollout was clunky, the website was terrible, and health care still has not been fixed by any stretch of the imagination. But the Affordable Care Act prevented insurers from denying insurance to people with pre-existing medical conditions, and it offered tax credits to small businesses that elected to provide health care to their employees. If you were a relatively healthy American who could afford your doctor's visits without going broke before 2009, then Obamacare was probably an abstract change or possibly it made your health care payments increase. But if you were a poor American without access to health care, or you were someone with a chronic illness or a pre-existing condition, like you'd had childhood cancer, for example, who had previously been denied care because your health was seen as too expensive for companies to insure, well, then the Affordable Care Act might have just saved your life. One last thing to note is that the Supreme Court played a large role in American life and grew more and more conservative. 
So just a few months before the 2008 election, District of Columbia v. Heller established for the first time ever that the Second Amendment does guarantee individuals have the right to own firearms. I'm going to pause for a second, y'all. That wasn't clearly established by the Supreme Court until 2008. What that means is that it was kind of assumed and it was being decided by lower courts. But it wasn't until 2008 that the Supreme Court looked at the Second Amendment and clarified, yes, we believe that this does give individuals the right to own firearms. Again, so many of these debates that feel like they've been around since our inception as a country are actually really new. The Citizens United decision in 2010 opened the floodgates for unlimited campaign financing by ruling that spending money was an act of speech protected by the Constitution. And corporations also had the right to free speech, meaning corporations also had the right to contribute money to whatever campaign they wanted. So from now on, corporations and wealthy individuals, well, anyone technically was free to make unlimited campaign contributions, but you had to have the money to make those unlimited campaign contributions. And this also expanded the ability of political action committees or PACs to spend exorbitant amounts on behalf of, but not directly connected to political candidates. The Supreme Court did rule on Obamacare, upholding most of the law, but clarifying that the government cannot mandate that all Americans must have health care. But like, they could tax Americans who don't have health care. So basically the same thing. I don't know. I'm not a Supreme Court expert. Maybe I'm missing something. Despite a clearly conservative-leaning court, two decisions led to the nationwide legalization of same-sex marriage. In 2012, Windsor v. United States struck down the law known as DOMA that limited the federal government's definition of marriage to one man and one woman. And three years later, in a landmark and sweeping ruling, Obergefell v. Hodges legalized same-sex marriage nationwide, instantly striking down 15 states' constitutional bans. This was a huge deal. The White House was lit up with the pride flag. Millions of Americans danced and wept and got married. It was the culmination of 50 years of like a clearly formed LGBTQ plus movement from Stonewall to the AIDS crisis to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And despite continuing partisan struggles, Obama won re-election in 2012. This was really the first true internet election, by the way, like two thirds of Americans were using social media during this campaign. Establishment and frankly boring candidates, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, couldn't really unite the Republican base, and Obama's economic recovery and social reforms were generally popular enough that the Democrats kept the White House and the Senate. So this is where I leave you for now. We have an incumbent Democrat facing an increasingly divided country, and a loud and increasingly radical contingent of far-right conservatives are building their resume based on obstructing democratic policies. Millions of Americans are struggling economically with the middle class decreasing in financial power and the ultra-rich gaining more control over the nation's wealth. Many cis, het, and or white, and or older Americans feel like the world around them with a black president and same-sex marriage, etc., is changing rapidly. And that maybe everyone in Washington is to blame. I mean, Democrats, obviously, but also moderate Republicans like Bush and McCain who weren't doing enough to drain the swamp and make America great again to be continued at some point. In the words of Elle Woods, we did it. Thank you for sticking with me on this four-year journey through U.S. history and stay tuned for the launch of season four and a new, improved, more consistent format. I have tons of amazing guest experts already lined up to teach me and you about fascinating rabbit holes of history. I'm starting my interviews with them literally next week. Plus, I'll have more current event analysis and random historical tangents sprinkled throughout, of course. 
In the meantime, one of the best ways to support my podcast and help me pay a real human producer, oh my gosh, so exciting, is to join my Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash antisocial studies and your monthly membership is the main way that I keep this podcast going and I really appreciate it. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.